0: You're listening to a podcast from HEART. Welcome to the HEART podcast. My name is Patrick Calvert. I work at Papworth Hospital and the University of Cambridge. Today, we're coming from the annual British Cardiovascular Society meeting at the Excel Center in London. It's my very great pleasure to introduce to you today Professor Alain Cribier of Ruron. Professor Cribier, welcome to London. Well, thank you very much for the invitation, Patrick. I know you're giving a number of keynote lectures at the conference today, one of which is the Paul Wood Lecture, where you will go through the development of TAVR from dream to reality over the past 20 years. Maybe you just take some time to tell us how it all started.
1: Well, it's a long story. <laughs> it started in the 80s, actually. You know. Um um, at the time, already um, surgical valve replacement was the gold standard treatment for all the patients with symptomatic aortic stenosis and uh, we already knew that the uh, without surgery the prognosis of this patient was absolutely terrible. You know, uh, We had a mortality rate of um, about 80% uh, at two years for those patients with symptoms and aortic stenosis. So the, the gold standard treatment was surgery. Unfortunately, uh, it was clear that many patients who should have been operated on were not operated on and they died. So I was a little fed up of seeing my patients dying, you know, because they were declined for surgery. Because at that time, in the 80s, age per se was a contraindication to surgery, not only comorbidities and high risk and so on. But when the patients were above the age of 75, in general, the surgeons declined uh, surgery. So. Uh, uh, in '85 in exactly, I had one patient who came to me several times with uh, uh, a lot of symptoms and uh, probably one of the most symptomatic patients that I have ever seen. She was a woman, she was 72 years of age and uh, she had also an associated coronary artery disease and uh, she, she came three times in front of the surgeons and three times she was declined for surgery. And this patient was a very nice woman. She, was, uh, she had a good brain and she was very active, she was working on a farm and so on. And so I decided to try for the first time uh, to make something else. And uh, so I used for the first time uh, balloon dilatation. I had some experience by doing uh, what we called balloon valvuloplasty at that time uh, on uh, young patients with congenital disease or rheumatic disease. So I said, why, why don't we try and we'll see what happened. But uh, I didn't have a, a positive response from my boss and so it took uh, an additional six months for finally uh, having the uh, green light, you know, for doing this first balloon valvuloplasty. The, the results of that was absolutely unbelievable. You know, these patients, uh, in spite of a moderate redu- reduction in gradient, because I didn't use a big size balloon at the time, I was very cautious, but all the symptoms disappeared for two years. And uh, so the, the result was so dramatic that immediately uh, we called uh, all the population of patients who had been declined for surgery and uh, we started a series of patients. This series was published in The Lancet in uh, eighty-six, and it was a uh, firework uh, in the world of interventional cardiology because immediately the technique was accepted by anyone. So uh, uh, this is the very beginning of the story of TAVI because in fact it started with balloon valvuloplasty. Balloon valvuloplasty was performed uh, in uh, more than 10,000 uh, patients worldwide. Uh, you know, and all the uh, medical community was very enthusiastic about it. But unfortunately, after two years, three years, uh, we realized that there were a very strong limitation, which was the high risk of uh, the high rate of restenosis. So it means that uh, we started to redo it once, and twice, and third, three times, and so on. And this was not really acceptable. And so, uh, at that time, it was in uh, 87, 88. I started to think that maybe uh, we might uh, use another technique, which would consist to implant an, an artificial valve using the same uh, transcatheter technique. And if I can uh, explain you why, it's because uh, when we were inflating a balloon <clears throat> across the aortic valve. Each time I was absolutely amazed to see that the, the balloon was able to be totally inflated, whatever the amount of calcium. So it means that if we could uh, go with a stent uh, crimped over the balloon, if the stent was strong enough to resist the, uh, the force uh, created by the calcium, and if we could maintain the valve open, then stenting the aortic valve might be the solution. Of course, a stent was not enough, and we had also to uh, think about uh, putting a valve structure uh, inside the stent. And then came the concept of balloon expandable stent and a valve structure, which was extremely challenging.
0: If I might ask you, Professor Cribier, the journey from balloon to a balloon stented valve is quite a chasm to jump across. How did, from a technical point of view, or from uh, literally from a... um, Uh, from a device point of view, how did you get the infrastructure to uh, build such a a prosthesis? Well
1: you know uh, it's good to have an idea but you have to convince yourself that uh, it's visible so uh, uh, first of all I had to uh, try to make uh, drawings <laughs> of a stent, of valve inside, inside. I'm not an engineer, so I didn't know whether it would be a unicusp, precusp, bicuspid valve. I didn't know anything about the, the way of attachment of the valve to the stent. Uh, I knew that the stent should have a very, very high radial force to uh, to uh, to be uh, delivered. And then I, I, made, I made some drawings and uh, And uh, after that, uh, the drawings are not enough. And so we made some model of the stented valve with my surgeon because we had a very, very close partnership with my uh, cardiac surgeon. So uh, we bought a peripheral stent. At that time, we had the uh, palma stent uh, for peripheral arteries. And uh, he uh, managed, you know, to place uh, so-called valve, which was made of uh, of, um, cell... Tissue, you know, very thin tissue, and so we uh, reproduced a model valve, and so we got to crimp the valve over a balloon, and then we realized that uh, as a whole it was probably feasible because the uh, internal diameter of the external diameter of this model of valve, when crimped over the balloon, was only eight millimeters. So it means that. It might be conceivable, you know, to use uh, such a valve in a, in a, in a patient through the femoral arteries, for example. So this was the first very important step, creating model, and then uh, we uh, we had to move to cadaver studies, so autopsy studies. And so this was absolutely crucial if uh, to answer your questions, you know, without this autopsy studies, probably we won't be there today to discuss about TAVI because uh, I had a series of patients who died of uh, aortic stenosis and at that time could uh, perform autopsies quite easily. And so uh, on all of these patients, one after the other, I was coming to the autopsy lab and uh, I was uh, trying to uh, use the Palmas stent uh, just to see whether we were able to open the calcific valve of those patients. And it was really interesting. You know, in all the cases I could definitely uh, put this balloon expandable stent without a valve, you know, it was just a stent, and uh, the, the stent was able to open the calcific valve and uh, we got a circumferential opening and also uh, I could use this um, autopsy study to measure uh, what would be the ideal dimension of the stent, you know, not to occlude the coronary arteries, not to touch the mitral valve, not to touch the interventricular septum. And uh, so I got the conclusion that a stent which would be around 15-17 uh, mm in height uh, would be enough to, uh, to protect all the adjoining structures. Also I got the conclusion, which was false, that uh, the, the optimal diameter should be 23 mm, that later on appeared to be uh, too small for many patients. So this was the very, very first step.
0: That's a fascinating insight and I think a lot of people perhaps don't appreciate the amount of work, the many years of, of development that went on even before it became to First in Man. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your First in Man experiences with the transcatheter aortic valve.
1: Yes, well actually uh, before the First in Man there was a long period of time where I tried to um, to get the device because if you, if you want to do a First in Man you need a prototype, you know. So uh, making the prototype was uh, probably one of the most difficult periods of my life because I had to convince the companies all the biomedical companies in the world to help and to sponsor the project and it was a complete failure so after five years i decided to build a a startup company with uh, three friends uh, who were convinced uh, including martin leon from the united states a very uh, very well-known cardiologist and two engineers and so we created a startup and then we, uh, we could find a development partner in Israel. So we, we got a, a small company uh, with engineers, extremely bright, uh, who were able to make the prototypes. Before the first in mind, there was a long period of animal experiment. So, you know, before you don't jump to the man with a prototype like this, so you have to prove that the device is working, that you have a delivery system, that you can have a good crimping device, and these kind of things. So, we use the sheep model, and we performed more than 100 implantations at different parts of the heart, you know, aortic valve, pulmonic valve, descending aorta, and so on we had to, uh, to create a model of chronic implantation, chronic study, which was not easy in the, in the, in the sheep. And uh, so finally, after one year of very intensive work in the, in the animal lab in Paris, uh, we got to the conclusion that maybe we could start to do a human implantation. So you were asking the questions about the first human implantation, but uh, this was certainly a historical case, you know, and, uh, but a very special case. And uh, when I think about this first case today, uh, I can tell you he had all the contraindications of TAVI that we respect today, all the contraindications. First of all, he was very young, he was 57 years of age, and uh, he was in carverging shock. Uh, He he had no myocardial contractility, and no contractility reserve, injection fraction was 12%, 12%. he had several episodes of cardiac arrest, he was really dying, he had multiple comorbidities, including something which was very unscheduled, you know, the uh, occlusion of the uh, femoral access on both sides, and he had an intraventricular thrombus, on echo. So it means that, uh, you know, today I will never accept two patients like that. But in fact, it came to us for uh, urgent uh, emergent uh, valvuloplasty uh, and we failed because the patients had several episodes of cardiac arrest during the procedure. So two days later, we had to take a decision. But he was 57, you know, so uh, uh, we decided uh, after a long, long exchange of mails with the, uh, my partners of... Uh, technologies that we might try, but we knew that if we failed in this case it would have very very severe consequences. But we didn't fail. And uh, it was uh, absolutely unbelievable. We used the transeptal approach uh, coming from a femoral vein. We didn't know how to cross the septum. We didn't know how to position the valve at the right place. You know, We, we knew absolutely nothing. And it was quite easy, actually, uh, technically. And uh, uh, We could observe on the cardiac catheterization table uh, an actual resuscitation of the patients. You know? So he had several episodes of cardiac arrest on the way to the cath lab during the procedure. And suddenly, you know, we could observe that the blood was was back to his cheek and that the the patient's brain was working normally and uh, believe it or not but two two, two hours later we were drinking the champagne with him in in his room you know so it was a real resuscitation and so I can understand retrospectively that this single case uh, had such uh, a tremendous effect on the medical community when it was published because uh, it was something absolutely unbelievable. So with a single case you know we demonstrated that first of all we it was feasible. Secondly, we demonstrated that we could implant a valve without uh, occluding the coronary arteries, without touching the mitral valve, no, no MR, uh, without a permanent block, uh, without, without nothing, the valve was not embolizing. And uh, the post-mortem has shown that the, uh, when we, you, you were implanting a Palma stent, the, the, the stent needed a 2 kilogram of traction force to be uh, to displaced. You know, so uh, I was quite positive, but well, it had to be demonstrated. The patient had no stroke. And uh, uh, so then, you know, uh, this was the beginning of a, a long period of uh, clinical investigation which was not easy to obtain from the uh, French administration because they, uh, the experts said that we were we had been very lucky but that there was no future for this technique so I had to, to again uh, you know deal with this opposition of experts and uh, finally they, um, they let us do a series of patients on compassionate basis so all the patients were supposed to die within 15 days so the worst patient that you can on the cath lab, and uh, they said uh, since you succeeded using the transeptal approach, you have to use the transeptal approach again. So, on the, on the other, so we did 40 patients. I don't know what was the Euroscore because the Euroscore was not calculated at that time, but probably more than 40 in each patient. And uh, uh, this uh, transeptal approach was quite successful because we had 85% success of implantation. And uh, the, uh, the mortality rate of the patient was uh, relatively high on the midterm follow-up because of the comorbidities. Of course, they died of the cancer or renal failure and so on, but uh, not of, the, of any kind of valve problem. The only limitation was the uh, aortic regurgitation paravalvular because we had a single size of 23 millimeters, so you know that it was too small. So this is the story, and uh, then uh, this was uh, the beginning of the history. I mean, after this uh, series of transeptal patients, uh, first of all, uh, our company was uh, acquired by a very big uh, company in the United States, uh, which is uh, Edwards Life Sciences, a company which is really uh, specialized in developing bioprostasis, so they knew everything about bioprostasis. Then the, this technique started dispatching in Europe and United States with uh, five, six people who did their first transseptal implantation. And uh, in the hands of Edwards, uh, the, the technique was uh, quite uh, modified, fortunately. It meant that they not only they developed a new valve, which was an improvement of the valve that I was using in transseptal, almost the same, but with some little changes and also they uh, developed a, way, uh, a delivery system that allowed to uh, implant the valve easily uh, coming from the femoral artery with some new delivery system and also uh, from the apex of the ventricle, which was a transipical approach. It means that uh, with this technology we were able to uh, implant the valve in almost 100% of patients with the indication.
0: that's an absolutely fascinating insight to what is really a quite a considerable journey to bring the technology really closer to where it is at the minute. I wonder if you could have perhaps give some advice to those people who want to innovate at the minute. Do you feel in the current climate that people who would like to innovate and bring out new devices have similar obstacles in the way that you had all those years ago with the blue valve valgeoplasty and subsequently the TAVI?
1: Doing an innovation in uh, biomedical technology today is very very difficult actually uh, first of all the people have to know where they are putting their feet you know so uh, uh, they are innovators so they are a little mad and uh, they uh, (laughs) or they have a big ego or something like this uh, secondly uh, they will have on the route to face uh, uh, what we call the followers it means the pe- the population of patients uh, of uh, physicians who uh, at the beginning are against the technique but when they see that uh, the technique is more or less working uh, they decide that uh, Thanks to them, you know, they they will make all the necessary improvement to maintain the the technique in life. And so you, uh, the innovators have to know that they uh, may be careful because those people can also consider at the end of the game that this, uh, your idea, your innovation is theirs. And also they will have to face uh, what we call opponents. And the uh, opponent, there is another word for that, it's called experts. So, the experts in general uh, consider that uh, uh, if the innovation is not there already, it means that uh, it cannot be done. And so, uh, for many reasons, they, they have a uh, number of arguments to destroy your project. So, you will have to face a lot of uh, so called enemies, you know, and you have to be extremely persuasive, you know, to. Uh, to convince them that there is a place for this uh, innovation. So you have to convince yourself, you have to convince people, you have to have a lot of qualities required. First of all, you have to make sure you have to be able to say that there is a clinical need. So you need a clinical need. So don't innovate if there is no clear-cut clinical need then you have to be uh, very imaginative, you have to be patient, uh, you, uh, uh, you have to uh, to be strong uh, to face the uh, uh, the, the experts um, and uh, you have to uh, quite um, rapidly uh, find partners because you cannot you cannot work alone in, in any field so you have to find partners and you have to select your partners uh, you have also to uh, be very lucky because uh, each time when you start a new technology you have to be lucky immediately because if not it will die and uh, you have to be supported by a lot of people and especially uh, in the in your team you know so you you have to, to get a real strong support of people around you so uh, it's a very very special uh, uh, features, you know, that are absolutely necessary. You have to know uh, many things about the regulation. You have to, uh, to know how to defend your project when you are uh, trying to find sponsorship. So uh, you have to be ready to ask all kind of questions that maybe you don't have in mind, like, for example, what is the market or you have to provide numbers. Uh, you, ha- you, you have to uh, really say that uh, it will uh, change positively what is already done so it's, you know, in the discussion it's, it's very, very difficult and you have to be ready to fail because uh, uh, finding a support and especially financial support today uh, is something extremely difficult and this is why uh, if you think that you have a good idea and if you cannot get a big support of the existing companies then you really have to move rapidly to uh, the foundation of a startup so the startup is the key you know, for innovation.
0: Trans cathode aortic valve replacement has already been fantastically successful and it must of course bring a smile to your face when you see how it is spread globally. I wonder if I could ask you though, what in your opinion are the obstacles to further expansion of the utility of the valve? Well,
1: uh, expansion is the, one of the main issue. you know, the, the main part of the discussions today, and so uh, when we, uh, you know, today, first of all, before expanding, we have to know who is concerned, you know, so today, you know, the, the population... Uh, concerned by TAVI is relatively limited. Uh, if you follow the guidelines of the uh, European Society of the uh, or the uh, Society in the United States, you know you you realize that the uh, population is not more than I would say 25 percent of the patients with symptomatic AS. It means that uh, you you can deal only with high risk patients, patients with contraindication indication to surgery, patients who are too frail. That's all, and you cannot move to intermediate patients, in intermediate risk patients, or all the patients of course and you have also a category of patients where you should do nothing because the patients have no uh, no hope to be improved by your technique so it's only 25 percent so now because of the good results that have been demonstrated by uh, evidence-based study like partner even though the uh, the devices used were uh, to are today con- considered obsolete but uh, well the partner was extremely positive and the uh, ten of thousands of patients included in registries uh, worldwide we know where we are going so people are starting to expand the technique to patients with intermediate risk there is no it's not emergency you know you you have to take time because uh, um, surgery is doing a very good job you know also so you have to keep that in mind that you have to fight again again surgeons who are really saving life with long-term results and so on today uh, our technique is associated with some uh, complications, as you know, uh, including, for example, uh, vascular complications, stroke, pacemakers, and so on, and the uh, leak, and uh, those complications are associated with an increased mortality, so it's not very satisfactory. And also we have a big question mark about the uh, uh, durability of the device, uh, because uh, even though uh, uh, no case of uh, um, valve dysfunction have been reported, except anecdotal cases, you know, but uh, uh, since the beginning, so, you know, that I am following patients for more than five, six or even seven years without any sign of deterioration of the leaflets, for example, which is absolutely amazing. We have to be very careful because we cannot offer these kind of procedures to patients that could have a problem with their valve after five or six years. You know, This is not fair for them, so uh, surgery has to be privileged for this intermediate group of patients. But we have studies ongoing, so this is very important because we have some uh, evidence-based studies in Europe and United States that are here to assess whether uh, we could uh, think about increasing the, uh, expanding the indications to intermediate risk patients. So we have the partner-to-trial in the United States with the advanced valve, we have the short trial trial in, uh, in uh, Europe with the core valve, and uh, uh, we are really uh, um, looking forward to the results of this evidence-based study. We have also some registry, and I know that in UK, for example, you have a registry ongoing. I think it's a registry on intermediate case patients. So uh, I think that uh, within five years, I I would say five years, we will probably found some additional argument to say that the technique might be improved, might be expanded to a category of patients who are not very high risk for surgery. I am not saying to all the patients.
0: And I'd like to ask you whether you feel that the French side of the delivery sheath that we've reached at the minute is as far as we'll be going, or do you feel there could be some concern that further reduction in French side might result in a reduced durability of the valve? What's your opinion on that, Professor? No, review? no.
1: I think that the uh, reduction of the French size will not uh, have any impact on the durability of the valve. You know, this is not acceptable, but the engineers, they know exactly what they are doing. So we, we don't, you know, you, the goal is not to uh, provide a valve that you could implant in a six French character. I mean, th- this is a nonsense. Uh, today uh, we are dealing with sizes which are quite compatible with the, uh, the femoral artery size uh, which explain why today we have between 85 and 90% of the patients implanted transfemoral you know so this, this gives you an idea and we are dealing with the sheaths with which are 16 to 18 French you know the for example the 16 uh, e-sheaths of Edwards for the uh, for the 23 millimeter valve today uh, we uh, today I mean uh, this year we'll have a new valves uh, provided with the sheaths uh, with a decreasing size of 14 French 16 French uh, it means that uh, more or less you will be definitely able to do 90% of the procedure using the transfermal approach, which is not a detail, you know, it's not just to say we are doing this transfermal. It's because if you do the transfermal approach with a 14 French introducer, it means that you can use a very minimalized technique and which is always uh, much better for the elderly patients uh, you know local anesthesia uh, uh, pre-closing techniques and uh, today in my department for example we are doing uh, 85 percent of the procedure using uh, local anesthesia and uh, pre-closing techniques the patients in average uh, are discharged after two days so you know this is where we are which is already unbelievable. Now, if you come with a 16 or 14 French, which is on the way this year, uh, this will be uh, improved further. You know? So this is absolutely amazing.
0: Finally, Professor Cribby, I'd just like to ask your opinion on the uh, principal mechanism of periprocedural stroke that has been, in, uh, has been observed in transcatheter aortic valve replacement and how you think we might best mitigate against it.
1: Well, uh, first of all, I would like to say that um, definitely uh, TAVI is associated with a little more uh, stroke than cardiac surgery, especially in the, in the very first weeks after the procedure. Now, if you take the, the whole uh, grafts, you know, you will observe that after one year, uh, the amount of stroke is absolutely similar. It means that uh, it's not a good reason to uh, consider. Uh, the stroke associated with TAVI as an anecdote. You know, it's uh, something very serious and it's uh, associated also with uh, a lot of incomfort for the patients and the higher mortality. So this is something that we have to struggle. But if we compare uh, surgery and TAVI as a whole, after one, two or three years, the amount of stroke is the same. So now uh, the stroke is a multi-f- uh, multifactorial uh, problem. And so we have uh, strokes uh, that are related to the procedure that uh, it means that the stroke occur during during the procedure so for this stroke which are uh, of uh, embolic origin in the majority of cases whatever it could be piece of calcium or a thrombus, a thrombus we, we don't really know that but we know that uh, we have plenty of migration of plaques or something in the brain during the procedure it has been clearly demonstrated on uh, on doppler and uh, and mri we may have a solution which consists in uh, um, uh, using filters for the caudid arteries and uh, so this is uh, under evaluation today uh, with uh, uh, several devices uh, that can uh, occlude, uh, n- not occlude, but filter you know, the uh, carded arteries to, to, uh, to avoid this kind of stroke. But this represents uh, relatively small proportion of the stroke occurring in study because this is during the procedure. The problem is that we have also strokes occurring after, uh, during the first months. So uh, no filters, you know, because the filters have been removed and so uh, we don't know too much uh, what to do against this. And uh, these strokes are uh, not only of embolic origin, but also of hemorrhagic origin. And so the only thing that we can really do is to try to uh, check again the treatment, the antiplatelet treatments that we give to patients after the procedure. Uh, To avoid uh, embolic origin, maybe we will have to use anticoagulant, for example, in patients with atrial fibrillation, something that we are not doing on a regular basis. And also we have to uh, maybe to limit the antiplatelet treatment to one antiplatelet agent instead of two, as we are doing today, to uh, limit the risk of bleeding. So uh, if we put all of that in the same basket, you know, probably we'll have a reduction of stroke. But unfortunately, uh, I think that um, the stroke will remain an issue for, uh, maybe if I am optimistic, between uh, one to two percent of the patients in the future. There is a little thing that we can really
0: uh, control. Professor Cribier, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great pleasure talking to you and discussing, hearing the story, and also hearing your ideas on this fantastic technology. I hope you enjoy the rest of Congress. Thank you very much. Merci.